So I imagine this is just a ceremonial position. I mean, they don't actually expect me to do any fighting. Does he? You're in the service of the steward now. You'll have to do as you're told, Peregrine Tuku. <coughs> Deep breath before the plunge. I don't want to be in a battle. But waiting on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. Is there any hope, Gandalf, for Frodo and Sam? There never was much hope. Just a fool's hope. I don't want to be in a battle, but waiting on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. Have you ever been on the edge of a battle you did not want to fight? Jesus has. When we meet him in our text today, it's Thursday night after the Last Supper. By this time tomorrow, on Friday, his body will be cold and dead in a tomb. But here, now, on Thursday... Jesus sees before him the shadow of the cross, and he's distraught. For Jesus, this is the deep breath before the plunge. It's the calm before the storm as the clouds of Calvary gather on the horizon. In one of the most emotional texts in all of Scripture, we meet Jesus in a garden, Gethsemane. We're going to read the account today. We're going to take it all in one chunk, and this is actually a combination of all four Gospels and how they tell this story. So let's look at what Scripture says. Then Jesus went with his disciples to an olive grove, a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. You, pray that you will not fall into temptation. So he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, about a stone's throw beyond them, he knelt down and fell with his face to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Then when he rose from prayer, he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. 
He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned the third time to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, Simon Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. No more of this. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword die by the sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Jesus is alone in the garden with God, waiting on the edge of a battle he does not want to fight in the deep breath before the plunge. Have you ever been on the edge of a battle you did not want to fight? Maybe your spouse came to you and said, we need to talk. Maybe your boss came into your office and closed the door behind him. Maybe a child came down the stairs and said, mom, dad, there's something I need to tell you. Maybe the doctor said, well, let's, let's just try one more round of treatment. Maybe the therapy will work this time. Maybe the bills are piling up and you think you're going to have to take another job just to make ends meet. I don't know what your struggle is, what your battle is today, but I know we all have them. And in those moments when you're not sure what to do, when it hurts, when you don't know the way out, when you're scared, it's dark, you're alone in the garden with God facing a battle that you do not want to fight. How do you react Let's take a look at some of the folks in the garden with Jesus that night, and let's see how they handled it. Let's start with Judas. Now, nobody wants to be compared with Judas, okay? In case you haven't noticed, Judas is not a very popular baby name. You can go to the hospital, look in the nursery, you're not going to see very many little Judas Iscariots in there in the bassinets, okay? It's like naming your baby Adolf. Not a good idea. I listened to a biography of Adolf Hitler actually a while ago, and as I listened to the biography, I was surprised because I found myself not thinking, wow, what a horribly evil person. How could he ever do such a thing? Rather, I found myself thinking, wow, I'm that self-centered. Yeah, I like power like that. Yeah, I'm proud and egotistical like that. Yeah, I, I can get angry like that. 
The shocking thing was not how foreign his wickedness was, but how familiar it was. Because it's the same sin I struggle with. And I think we can get caught up into thinking that Judas Iscariot must have been the worst person who ever lived. Now, Judas did a horrible thing. He betrayed the Son of God. But I'm not sure he was the worst person in history. His sin was not incomparable. In fact, it's the same sin that you and I commit when we live a life of divided loyalties. Oh, and we may not think, I'm fighting for the enemy. I'm going to betray Jesus. No, it's just a little compromise here and there. You see, on the one hand, in some ways, Judas was actually loyal to Jesus. I think probably that Judas followed Jesus in the beginning for the right reasons, He was involved with their charity work. He saw the miracles. He laughed at their jokes. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He may have even believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And then on the other hand, he still lived for himself. He wasn't 100% in for Jesus. Scripture tells us that Judas was in charge of the money bag for Jesus and the disciples and that he stole out of it and took it for himself. He was controlled by, by money and greed. Now, I don't think Judas started out saying, I shall betray the Son of God, and then I will commit suicide. No. He started out saying, oh, there's plenty in there. They won't miss just a little bit. Besides, I'll I'll, I'll pay it back later. And little by little, inch by inch, he compromised until he became corrupted enough that he betrayed the Son of God for what? 30 pieces of silver. Chump change. He compromised until he got to the point where on Thursday night he led that band of a couple hundred soldiers and religious cronies on their quest to find Jesus and arrest Jesus and his motley crew of buddies. And they wandered through the city. They came to the upper room where Jesus had just washed Judas's feet. But they didn't find him there, but Judas had a pretty good hunch where they'd be. So he went outside the city. They climbed up a hill to one of Jesus's favorite prayer spots, that olive grove called Gethsemane. And there, at the gate of the garden, they run into Jesus and his disciples. And for a moment, it's quiet. And every eye is trained on Judas and Jesus as they meet face to face, locked eye to eye. And Judas grabs Jesus by the cheek, says, hello, teacher. And he kisses him. And Jesus is still looking Judas there in the eye, but at this point, Judas turns away, and Jesus says, friend, do what you came for. Jesus calls him friend. Can you taste the bitter irony there? They had been friends. Judas was there that day in Galilee on the hill by the sea where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, and he talked about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and blessing those who curse you. And now here Jesus is in the garden with this man who was once his friend, and he's living it out. He's loving his enemy, Judas. This man, Judas, one of the 12, he shared meals and hikes and laughs and tears. They had so many memories together. And then Judas just turns his back. How did that happen? It happened in the little moments when Judas chose to live for himself instead of for Jesus. It happened in the little moments every day when Judas just decided to compromise with the enemy. In your moments in the garden, in your moments of pain and struggle and darkness, when you're facing a battle that you don't want to fight, it's going to reveal who your trust is really in, Jesus or yourself. So when push comes to shove, are you compromised or are you committed? 
Now, Judas compromised with the enemy, but let's take a look at Peter. Because Peter didn't so much compromise with the enemy so much as he just fought with the wrong weapons, Peter did. Now, you may remember the apostle Peter. He had a brother named Andrew. Andrew and Peter, they're both disciples, but they had very different personalities. I am the oldest of six kids, and I have two younger brothers, Carl, and then Conrad is the youngest one. And when Carl and Conrad were young, Conrad's middle initial was A-D-D, okay? This kid had energy coming out of his ears. He was just bouncing off the walls. Carl, the older one, he's 100% boy. And Conrad, he's 100% boy plus like 30% tiger, okay? That's who my brother is. And one, one time, I think Conrad was four, maybe Carl was six, and they went traveling with my dad for a weekend. My dad's a preacher, and so dad preached, and then after church, they're all out to lunch. And Carl and Conrad have made a little friend, this little kid named Jose. And so Carl and Conrad and Jose, they're all playing together, having a good time. And then Jose's grandmother calls Jose over, says, Jose, tell me the names of these two little friends that you've made. And Jose says, uh, one of them's name is Proctor, and the other one's name is Proctor! <laughs> and my dad knew exactly who he was talking about. <laughs> and that's Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew Bar-Jonah is their last name. means son of Jonah. Now, Andrew is Bar-Jonah, and Peter is Bar-Jonah. That's who he is, okay? He's part man, part tiger, and he generally acts before he thinks. So when Peter sees Judas betray Jesus here, Peter, even though he's outnumbered about 600 to 1, he doesn't care. He comes out swinging, and he takes a hefty hack at this servant guy named Malchus, except Malchus ducks, and Peter just lops off his ear. Now, Peter wasn't going for the ear, okay? That's pretty lame as far as warfare goes. Peter was trying to split his skull. Mal on one side, cuss on the other, right? He's trying to give him a haircut at the jawline, if you know what I mean. But Peter was a fisherman, not a swordsman. He had the will, but he didn't have the skill. Lucky for Malchus. And so as soon as Jesus sees Peter come in for the kill, well, Jesus just jumps all over Peter. Says, Peter, knock it off. Put that thing away. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Peter was well-intentioned while he was trying to defend Jesus, but he got it all wrong. Malchus wasn't Peter's enemy. He's just a servant doing his job. And as Christians, we need to understand that other people are not our enemies. The war that we fight is spiritual. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You're not fighting your family members or your co-workers or your neighbors or even your ex. You are fighting the devil himself. So it's time to change the way that we wage war. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. And eventually, Peter learned to change the way he fought. There came a day, just about 50 days after Gethsemane, when Peter stood up and he waged war against the powers of darkness with another sword, the double-edged sword of the word of God. And Peter stood up and he preached the first Christian sermon on Pentecost that day in Acts chapter 2. And as he preached using the word of God, Acts 2.37 says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
Peter told them to repent and be baptized. And that day, 3,000 of them gave their lives to Jesus. I'd say the word of God is a better sword to use. So back in the garden, when Peter does his hack job on Malchus, Jesus says, Peter, put that thing away. First of all, if we were here to fight, I wouldn't need your help. And secondly, we're not here to fight. Something bigger is going on. And I think we sometimes do this too. There are a lot of angry Christians today who think that it is their job to draw their swords and defend Jesus, and they wage their holy war in Jesus' name with good intentions. But trust me, church, sword-swinging Facebook rants are not helping Jesus' mission. When people see negative, crotchety, complaining, mean-spirited Christians, why in the world would they want what we have? So put away your sharp tongues. Stop your sword swinging. That's not the way Jesus does things. Rather, we fight a spiritual battle. And the best way we do that is through prayer. Jesus came to the garden to fight. He fought on his knees. And that's what he asked Peter and James and John to do with him. But they were too weak. They fell asleep. And I wonder if sometimes we fall asleep in the middle of the battle that's raging on around us. Peter was willing to fight with a physical sword, but he was too weak to fight with spiritual weapons. Let me take a minute and talk to the men in the room. Men, you are called to defend your families. But that means more than what the world tells you it means. Defending your family means fighting for them every day in prayer. Any man who doesn't fight on behalf of his family to defend them through prayer daily is a weak man. Any man who doesn't own a Bible is a weak man. Any man who isn't diving deeper every day into the word of God is a weak man. A strong man knows how to handle his sword, the word of God. A strong man defends his family through prayer and does spiritual battle on their behalf. A strong man knows how to fight through prayer. So when you're alone in the garden with God, when you don't know what to do, when you're on the edge of a battle that you don't want to fight, stop fighting the way the world fights. Stop trying to do things your own way. Use the weapons Jesus is calling you to use. Get down on your knees and pray, 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 pray. Fight the Jesus way. Let's look at Malchus here for a second. <clears throat> First of all, can you imagine being Malchus? Here Malchus is, and he's kind of walking in the front of this crowd as they're going out to arrest Jesus and Jesus' buddies. One thing leads to another, and about the time the soldiers grab Jesus to take him away, one of Jesus' friends, this burly, bearded, wild-eyed, stinky-breathed psycho, starts yelling and waving a butcher knife around, and he lunges, and he's swinging his knife like a madman, and Malchus, well, wrong place, wrong time, okay? So Malchus, he tries to duck, but he's a second too late, and he feels that blade along the side of his head, feels the gush of blood on his cheek. He looks down, and there's his ear on the ground. My ear, my ear, that stinky breath, psycho Galilean fisherman freak just cut off my ear. And then with his one good ear, he hears a voice rise above the clamor of the crowds. Cut it out, Peter. And then Jesus, whom they just bound and arrested, mind you, slips his hands out of the ropes. A lot of good those did. <laughs> Walks over. He picks up Malchus's ear. I remember when I made this. <laughs> sticks it back on Malchus's head, gives it a couple pats to make sure it sticks. 
And without saying a word, he walks back over to the soldiers with his wrists out so they can tie him back up again. I bet Malchus spent the rest of his life telling people about how even when he was Jesus' enemy, Jesus healed him. You know, when, when we're fighting these battles, when we're alone in the garden with God, it tends to turn our focus inward. We become self-centered. We lose sight of what's going on outside of us. We just, we look inside. Yet that's not what Jesus did. Jesus chose in the midst of his pain to look outward and to choose radical love. You may be hurting today and the tendency is to look inside at your own hurt, but do what Jesus did. Will you choose to radically love someone? I hope, I hope I would do that if I was in Jesus' place in the garden. I hope that I would have picked up Malchus's ear. I hope I would have healed him. Probably would have stuck it smack on the middle of his forehead, but I hope I would have healed him. Will you choose to radically love somebody even when it hurts? When you're alone in the garden with God, don't compromise with the enemy like Judas did. Don't fight with the wrong weapons like Peter did. Choose to love like Jesus did. Let's look at the angels here for a second. We see pictures of angels in our culture as these cute little naked babies flying around all sweet and chubby and cuddly, you know. Well, I hate to break it to you. The Bible doesn't mention any sweet little naked baby angels, okay? Angels are described as these supernatural soldiers and they're armed. They are the mightiest warriors in the universe. And Jesus says here to Peter that if he wanted to, he could call down an army of 12 legions of angels to defend him. Now, a legion was 6,000 soldiers in the Roman army. So let's do a little bit of angel arithmetic. 12 legions times 6,000, that's 72,000 angels. Pretty decent sized army. Except in the Old Testament, there's a story where just one angel single-handedly kills 185,000 human soldiers. So crunch the numbers a little bit. We find out that an army of 12 legions of angels could easily kill 13.2 billion human soldiers. That's twice the human population on earth today. You've heard of people describing war and they say that all hell broke loose. Well, church, let me tell you, that's nothing compared to when all heaven breaks loose. Jesus could have gotten out of Gethsemane. He could have avoided the cross. And yet he didn't. Can you imagine the angels in heaven, armed to the teeth, standing ready, locked and loaded, waiting for the order from the Father? Uh-uh, Rome. Uh-uh, Jews. Y'all don't know who you're messing with. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Can we go yet, God? They must have been shocked as they saw Jesus arrested, slapped, tried unjustly, beaten, whipped, mocked, ridiculed, nailed, and crucified? Father, don't you see what they're doing to your son? Lord, can we go yet? This can't be the plan. Lord, can, we can take care of this. And yet the order never came. Because instead of choosing to save himself, Jesus chose to surrender himself. It's the greatest miracle that never happened. Jesus chose not to rescue himself. He chose not to call the angels. He chose not to come down from the cross. It's the greatest miracle that never happened and it paved the way for the greatest miracle that ever happened. So when you're alone in the garden with God, when you're waiting on the edge of a battle that you don't wanna fight and the miracle that you've been praying for doesn't come, don't lose heart. God's not done yet. 
Don't compromise with the enemy. Don't fight with the wrong weapons. And when what you're praying for doesn't happen, don't lose heart. Let's look at what Jesus did when the miracle didn't happen. It's been an exhausting week for Jesus at this point. He's tired, he's sad. He says that his soul is so troubled, even to the point of death. And so he asks the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to, to come and pray with him, because we all need people when we're in dark places. But the disciples keep falling asleep, and so Jesus is alone. He's alone in the garden with God. And he drops to the knees, and he cries out, Abba, Father, Everything is possible for you, God. I, God, I know you can do this. Yet not my will, but, but yours be done. Jesus is on his knees begging God to take it away. And God says, no. The Bible's pretty upfront about the reality that some of you will never be healed or delivered the way you want to be. Sometimes we pray and God says no. And Jesus understands your pain. He's totally human here. Look at Jesus' pain. It says that he was praying so hard that the stress caused the capillaries in his forehead to burst and he sweat drops of blood. He's under such intense agony. Hebrews chapter five, verses seven through nine says that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries to the one who could save him from death. God could have done something about it. And God heard him and he said no. But because of his reverent submission, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus is on his knees begging God. And Jesus didn't get what he wanted. And as Jesus struggled there alone, writhing in pain, the devil thought he had him cornered. The demons grinned in the darkness when they saw the son pitted up against the father. And yet, even in his pain, Jesus chose to be faithful. He chose to obey. He chose to live out the Lord's prayer that he taught his disciples. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He chose not to rescue himself. He chose not to call the angels. He chose to be silent when he was accused. He chose to forgive those who were nailing him to the cross. He chose to be forsaken by the Father so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken by the Father. Nobody rescued Jesus from what he suffered so that when you were suffering, you could be rescued. Jesus drank the cup and he absorbed the wrath of God and he went to the cross and yet God saw it through to a resurrection. When I was a little kid, my family went to McDonald's a lot, big spenders, you know. So uh, I'd get my uh, chicken nuggets and my fries and I'd get my hot mustard and God's fountain drink, orange pop, right? And then we'd go out to the playland to eat. I miss the playlands. My favorite part was the ball pit, those little germ bacteria breeding facilities. You guys remember those? Yeah, those were the good old days. Except when I was really little, I was too scared to get into the ball pit. I don't know why, it just was. And so one time, I was like two, I was sitting on the edge. I was just too scared to get in. 
And so my dad comes over to the edge of the playland. He says, hey, Luke, hop on in. It'll be fun. Uh-uh. <laughs> Come on, buddy. It'll be fine. Just, just go for it. Mm-mm. So my dad, he's a good dad. He got down in the ball pit there. He's got his arms up to me. Come on, Luke, come play with me. It'll be a good time. Uh-uh. <laughs> so my dad climbed out and he sat there on the ledge with me. He said, Luke, would you get in if I got in with you? Yeah. So my dad, he, he put his arm around me and he shoved me into the ball pit. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. He got in with me. church, when you're on the edge of a battle that you don't want to fight, when you're alone in the garden with God, and when it's dark and you're scared and you don't know how you're going to get out, I can tell you one thing you can know. You've got a Father who loves you, and He's with you, and He's got your back. And the miracle that you're praying for, it may not come. And He may ask you to carry a cross. But He'll see it through to a resurrection every time. You can trust your Father. So don't compromise. Don't try to do it your own way. Don't give up. When you're in the dark, waiting on the edge of a battle that you don't want to fight, just get down on your knees and pray as Jesus did. Not my will, but yours be done. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus.